Welcome. I'm Rico Montañez. And I'm James Jordan. And this is the Emerald Forge. And this is a podcast designed to help really bring some real resources to the cannabis industry, helping brands uh, with all the different verticals from accounting, marketing, getting into dispensaries, all the different pieces we can do, bringing experts and brands together to talk about the real struggles and the real issues that are happening and affecting cannabis today. Yeah, we're really here to help cannabis small businesses navigate these choppy waters of uh, everything related to launching and growing a business in this particular time. So let's move into the news. These new QR codes that are coming out that are now having to be on all the packages. What's 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 up with that? You know, I'm not 100% sure on that yet. I know that, um, you know, the state, whether it's California or any other state, um, they're they're really trying to come up with um, solutions for track and trace. You know, I know that there's, um, it's super important for law enforcement, let's say, right? Let's say law enforcement pulls you over and you have your materials on you and, but you're actually doing black market stuff. How do they know whether to put you in the cop car or to seize your product or to let you go? I think that they're looking for a real time solution where they can do track and trace and make it, um, viable for law enforcement and also for tax. You know, that's essentially what this is all about anyways. It's also for the consumer as well. I mean, people are now, when you go to a dispensary, you see a number, some random licensing number. You have no idea, is that a real licensing number? Is it legit? I don't even know what website to go to. But if you have a QR code scanner that you could just quickly take a photo of it, and now you know everything about this product, you know all of it. It's testing. It's also kind of a credibility builder. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm still very skeptical about the QR code. Um, you know, they tried to launch that in the United States like 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit longer, and the QR code just never took off. In Europe, you saw it all, all over the place. You saw it on billboards, and people would be like, they're very, uh, they were able to engage with that technology and able to use it and adopt it. The United States never took off. So I'm still skeptical. Now, how does this affect, uh, how does this, this kind of changes? Because, man, these changes come out every 10 seconds. Uh, with packaging and, and, and with, I mean, now you've just put out tons of product that now the packaging is illegal and you can't even do it anymore. What do you, what do, you do? What are the solutions? Well, it's a, it's a nightmare. Um, but I have seen, uh, you know, we ran into this um, when we printed packages for a gummy company and we had 10,000 packages and the font size was the wrong size. So we're like, oh, it, it's not up to code, right? It's not within compliance. So what we had to do was make a sticker and that was within compliance. So I think that the initial uh, solution is a QR code sticker to go over existing packages to be in compliance. And then on your next run of packaging, you, you incorporate it. Yeah. Well, it, it just hits you so hard when it's you a have cost, these kind of sure. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big unexpected cost. Kind of another another kind of cannabis curveball, right? Yeah. So let's uh, let's move into what the funk, man. What the funk? Have you heard of this thing called weed washing? So they they I, I'm not sure if you heard, but originally there was something called pink washing. I think this is where they got it from. And pink washing was for breast cancer awareness. Brands, you know, you have the pink little uh, oh, sure. ribbon, yeah, 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 yeah. right? So brands were putting on this pink ribbon, whether or not any of the profit went to breast sure. cancer or yeah. not. They were misleading people and just putting this pink that. limb all over the place. Now people are starting to do this with CBD. Right, this is a big thing, and they're calling it weed washing, which is funny because CBD isn't directly THC, right, right. but whatever. But uh, they're putting CBD on everything yeah. in their mother, whether or not it even has any real uh, terpenes in it, whether it has any totally. cannabinoids, any CBD in it whatsoever. They just want to try to get this wellness momentum that is happening with yeah. this kind of thing. What the funk with that, man? 
it's the market. It's capitalism 101, right? If you're going to convince somebody that this is the thing that they have to have in this product they're about to buy and you want to sell more of those items, you're going to put that in there until you get caught. That's just the way it is. They did it with greenwashing, right? Remember when like everything was eco and green? And, oh, I do remember right? that, That's, yeah. It's still that way. It's like they're putting it on vehicles when the vehicles are emitting the same amount of pollutants uh, that they were before. Exactly. It's to- it's A lot of it is BS. Um, I think we need some uh, third-party entity to determine the quality of how these people are performing with that particular label. Like, for example, if you want to be an eco company, there should be a third-party site that says, yeah, these guys are that eco. They're oh, like, like the organic. Yeah, Like the exactly. organic certification. Yeah, exactly. You're like 10 points eco or green or whatever. I think there should be the same thing with quality when you have that label. If you have a CBD label, what does it mean? There's got to be some th- third-party tester or rating system for that because you can't you can't trust the brands to – have integrity when they're put, printing their own packaging. Absolutely not. They're, whatever's going to increase the profits, no that's what they're going to put okay. onto it. They, there's got to be an outside vendor that, or an outside third party that's checking these claims and making sure that they're that they're legitimate. I agree 100%. But can you believe that that's happening? I, I can't totally. believe it. With the CBD space, it's just crazy. So watch what products you're using in the yeah. CBD space. Make homework. sure they're legitimate. Yeah, do your homework. Do your due diligence. Yeah, and, and understand the difference between the products. You know, if you're buying a product and it just has CBD isolate in it, Know that that's not going to have a full offering of cannabinoids and terpenes, et cetera, that you would get from a full spectrum or a broad spectrum type extraction. Just know that CBD isolate is probably in 90 to 95% of the products that you see out there that has CBD in it. Really understand what you're buying. So if you are really interested in the value of CBD, you're really going to go after a broad spectrum or a full spectrum product, and that's probably not going to be at Target Walmart and Whole Foods. Okay. It's not yeah. going to happen. You're going to get that at a store that specializes in that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of the experts, they talk about the entourage effect, yeah. which is when the CBD interacts with all the other terpenes, all the other cannabinoids involved right. in the product. That's what really brings the benefit. So, a lot of these companies are separating out just the CBD because it's the only thing that's legal, right? according to the farm bill, and they're trying to put it in all these products, and you're like, well, wait a minute, what, what is, does it actually work? Does it actually do anything when it's by itself? And the science is not showing a lot right now. So make sure you do a little bit of research, uh, and, and if nothing else, at least make sure that it's a credible brand that really does have some actual terpenes and cannabinoids involved right. in there with real CBD. Yeah, do, do your homework. Just yeah. become an educated consumer. If you want some more information, on CBD, you can also check out the CBD project. And the CBD project is a good uh, base of information for that. So let's talk about what we're going to be talking about today in the episode. We're going to be talking about fundraising, but more specifically, crowdfunding. Right. Yeah. So crowdfunding, a little bit different than traditional institutional fundraising. This is where you're kind of going around and asking more of the everyday person to kind of help you with your with your investment and give you some money that you can start moving and rock and rolling with your business. Yeah, you got to think about crowdfunding like this. You know, when you go to uh, an institutional investor or anybody, you know, a professional investor, um, they are very organized. They tend to have an investment thesis. They only invest in certain things. They invest in it in certain ways. And there's only a certain model that fits that. When you do crowdfunding, it's essentially micro syndication. It's basically asking everybody that's on the platform that is able to see what you're selling them for 100 bucks or 200 bucks or 1000 bucks. What that does is it allows your request to be heard by a thousand times more people 
so you have more chances to raise capital, and it, it's an opportunity for the general market, the general mom and pop, to invest in your business when normally they would not have that opportunity unless they were a professional investor. A lot of these investments come from family offices or attorneys or CPAs. You don't necessarily have to do that with this. And so by you mean professional investors, you mean accredited investors, and uh, accredited investors are people that have a certain amount of money. They've had a certain amount of experience right. in investing. They're established. They're proven to be investors. Whereas like my mom or my dad, right, isn't an accredited investor, but they might still want to invest in my business. And so this type of crowdfunding allows them to actually potentially do that. Yeah. So we have some great experts coming in, Paul Shockley and David Schachter, uh, to come in and specifically talk to us about crowdfunding, give yeah. us their expertise. The great thing about them in this episode today is they're actually – both sides of the coin. So they're not only the experts who understand kind of what it is to do crowdfunding, what they're looking for, what do the investors want, but they actually have gone through and done it. So they they have a company, uh, Cannabis Scope, that they just recently went through crowdfunding. Yeah. And so they have horror stories <laughs> and right. battle scars to prove that not only do they know the philosophy of it and kind of the, the books of it, but they've actually gone out into the real world and actually practiced it. You know, it's really interesting because not only is this a unique sector, you know, I'll bet you you can't name one other person that's done a crowdfunding like this in the cannabis space. It really is so rare. But not only have they tried it, but they were successful at it. And to have them as part of our group and part of our podcast is really extraordinary because, well, I think what we're going to look at in the next five to 10 years is that more people will start to look at crowdfunding, equity funding as a solution to startups because of the constriction of capital, particularly in the cannabis space. I think crowdfunding is going to be the number one choice, hopefully, if, uh, if I'm a betting man in the next five years. <laughs> and they're gonna give us some really great advice in that. So I'm super, super excited to have them sit down with us today. Welcome, guys. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Really appreciate it. So we'll do just some quick introductions. Paul, you wanna tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm the general manager here at Cannabiscope. Uh, I've been a serial entrepreneur for about 15 years. I've done international real estate in Panama. I've done production companies, marketing firms. Um, I did an education platform for museums, zoos, and aquariums. And now uh, my passion is Cannabiscope, uh, an e-commerce platform for CBD. All right. And David? Uh, my name is David Schachter. I'm a CEO and co-founder of Cannabiscope. I really came up with the idea a few years ago after studying abroad and I was living in Israel doing marketing and went to Amsterdam, learned about terpenes, saw what was happening in the U.S. and came up with this app as a software for the cannabis industry. So I've been working in cannabis for over five years now in tech. So tell us a little bit about Cannabis Scope, kind of what it does and what it is. And Cannabis Scope's this interactive wheel where we've categorized Strains want to get away from sativa and indica, and really it's about terpenes. So seeds, flowers, or cannabis have different smells, and there's also cannabinoid content per each strain. So we matched the terpene, cannabinoid, and kind of gave this aroma wheel and an experience wheel. And as cannabis is grown across the U.S. with dispensaries in Colorado and California, it's, it's a full menu system. Helps people find the products they want. And we've made a shift into the CBD e-commerce space. So its products are similar that are hemp-derived as their tinctures and other topicals. 
and it's just a way to really help people find the right products because cannabis can be really confusing for new people when they come into dispensaries even people with experience there's so many new products and brands that the wheel is this discovery tool to help people find the right product for themselves and i think that it's important to talk about the evolution that cannabis scope's gone through you know initially it was an education tool um, that people sort of used to learn about what cannabis could offer them and then as we sort of progressed as an organization, you know, how do we really make a dollar or save a dollar? We were finding that the, the online shopping experience where you don't have a bud tender in front of you is incredibly frustrating because it's just pictures and a list of names. And, and you're sort of just picking, almost like some people pick wine, yeah. where you go find the picture you like. And it's like, all right, this is what I'm going to drink tonight. <laughs> you know, we were finding the same thing with cannabis. So what we've done is, you know, we've created this e-commerce platform. It has a content management system on the back end um, that allows you to upload your products, pictures, descriptions, um, and then the wheel self-populates. And then the wheel is a really fascinating solution because it's uh, an A-frame. And what an A-frame is, is it's something that you can actually drop onto an existing site. Um, so it makes it really easy for someone who wants to get into selling CBD products uh, because if you have a blog or even sort of a a funky little website, we empower you to create a really robust educational and shopping experience for your end users. You know, we're really here to help anybody who wants to make money in CBD and cannabis as a whole. We want to make it easier for you to sell products and engage your end users. Now, Cannabis Scope is kind of a unique, you're both experts kind of in the fundraising space, Shockley and, and, and David, you both have experience kind of building this. Shockley, you, you teach at uh, the University of San Diego, correct? UCSD, yeah. So I, uh, you know, UCSD is a very forward-looking campus. Um, they sort of have a beef with MIT. MIT currently has the most businesses launched off their campus, and UCSD is second. <laughs> so my, I was brought in as what's called an entrepreneur in residence. So there's about 12 of us, and they've injected us into faculty-run and student-run businesses to bring sort of real world experience to sort of the fun sandbox that is college to really try to get these, you know, faculty and students to see what the real world, what the jungle looks like when you go and launch into sort of the free market. And so you also went into fundraising yourself as a brand. And so you went, you kind of went the, the traditional route and then decided to go crowdfunding. Tell us a little bit about the story there, how you guys decided to look at raising and the process that that went through. So I've, I've done kind of all the ways that you can sort of look at fundraising. So my early companies were actually creative. So we would build websites and video productions. So those were actually things where we were able to create revenue almost out of thin air. So I bootstrapped companies. And then my past company that we were, I worked at was a white-labeled platform for museums, zoos, and aquariums that allows them to really change their museum experience and bring it to the 21st century. We actually did angel investment for the seed round and then did a series A of 4 million with VCs. So I had a lot of experience in sort of your typical fundraising where you have an idea, you've shown enough traction um, that an investor is interested in what you're doing. Um, Cannabis scope was a really interesting challenge because between the legalities, the lack of knowledge in the space, investors are very touchy about what they're willing to invest in um, and so you know we were sort of touring around um, with a really nice pitch deck and a, and a pitch to 
you know, angels and VCs, and we just weren't getting any interest. So I'll sort of let Dave tell how we stumbled upon equity crowdfunding. Yeah, and actually, before we move forward, so tell us a little bit about uh, angels, VCs. What, is, what does that mean? What are those terms? So there's people out there who have been successful enough at business that they have capital to work with. They're, they've made enough money that, you know, instead of going to the stock market or going to the racetrack to bet, um, they look at companies and they tend to sort of vet the company uh, and they're what we, we call investors. So that's the umbrella term is investors. Um, and they, they tend to look at people um, and companies and ask themselves, if I give you a million dollars, I believe that in five to 10 years, you're going to hand me $10 million. So that's sort of the investor concept of that's how investors work. That's how investors think. Now, there's two subcategories of investors. There's an angel, and an angel is an individual who typically likes to invest anywhere from fifty dollars to $200,000. Um, and they're referred to as angels, I think, actually, because they can save your butt. Um, <laughs> they can come in, and for equity, they'll help you in a hard space, or they'll give you the seed capital you need to execute. On the other end of the spectrum is sort of uh, a VC and what a VC is is it's a group of wealthy individuals who pool their money together and they work to sort of go after typically larger investments um, which can be anywhere from a million to five million dollars and then there's 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 early stage you know seed VCs but it's just really important to understand that an angel is usually an individual or always an individual and then a VC is a group of people who you will will work with. And there's sort of unique attributes about each uh, that are important to consider, but it's just important to understand those two types of investors that are your, what you sort of call institutional investors that play by the rules that you'd expect. They want board seats. They, they want some control. Um, and yeah, so that's, hopefully that, that explains it. That helps as well. And also those are categories as institutional investors. So that helps us when we talk moving yeah. forward. So, and, and that's, and that's cool. sort of, that's, there is an industry around that. Gotcha. You know, people, people make a living being angel and VCs. So, so what was, you were referring to David, what was your... So I wanted Dave to sort of, you know, we, we had tried the angel investor route and it, it wasn't really working out that great. So Dave was the one who stumbled upon the equity crowdfunding. Yeah. I mean, there's a SaaS tech company. We have clients all over the world where there's software we can expand. You know, we were, we had traction. It's sticky. People were using it. We had demo sites like it was live i could show it on my phone and and there's traction um vcs want to see like steady revenue over the past few months and you know we're a startup um angels i talked to a lot of people um actually got to negotiate with a few but it was still like it wasn't a pleasant experience in some aspects and applying for an equity crowdfunding. I've knew, known of crowdfunding. Cannabis tech was now being allowed in, um, and that was just a, a giant milestone for the company to actually get an offer and and go with them because it had the validity and, and it brought investors in, brought credibility. Of course, our whole compliance, that had to go into it, but um, it was a major milestone for us to be accepted into a crowdfunding camp. What is... What is- Crowdfunding, and then what is? Because you, you said crowdfunding, and then you also said equity crowdfunding, which 
equity crowdfunding is different than other crowd. So crowdfunding for Kickstarter or GoFundMe. GoFundMe is, from what I understand, it's like a donation where you can help somebody with a study abroad or something like that. Kickstarters for businesses, but they essentially give a product. You're one of the early buyers. You're guaranteeing yourself right. a product. Mm-hmm. Where equity crowdfunding, we actually gave up a percentage of our company and shares. So we were able to really go to the community and we had businesses that are partners and just end users and um, just kind of rallied the community to, to raise our funds. And I think it's important to, to, when you think about equity crowdfunding, what it really does, you know, there's this terminology, friends, family, and fools. And that tends to be who entrepreneurs go to initially. It's, it's that, that network of close people who can, who can give you enough money to sort of get to a, an MVP, a minimum viable product where you're showing traction and might be more attractive. What the equity crowdfund does in a really interesting way is it formalizes that sort of process of reaching out to friends, family, and fools and allows you to offer actual equity. Um, and, and the platform does a lot more than that. Obviously, when you offer people equity, the SEC gets involved, taxes get involved. So these platforms have done a really amazing job of helping you sort of navigate those waters of the SEC. And then for us, for example, we ended up having 741 investors uh, come and give us capital. Yeah, thank you to all of you if you're listening. And the platform, you know, when you have investors in your company in the future, they might need to vote on things. They're going to need updates. What these platforms do that's really amazing is they help you uh, manage all of that. And then something that's really important, you know, and this is a little in the weeds, but a, a cap table. A cap table basically in its most simple form is letting you know how much of the company does each person own. And a cap table is pretty important because you want to keep it well organized and you don't want a lot of people on it. And so there is a misconception that, well, if you're doing equity crowdfunding, do we have 741 people now on our cap table? The answer is no. And this is another service that equity crowdfunding does that's really amazing is they consolidate all of those people into one entity on your cap table. And then all of that voting and all of those sort of interactions that would be an absolute nightmare, uh, they manage for you. Um, and so it really is an amazing solution. And again, as someone who's done this a lot, I, I do see it as kind of this interesting bridge between the friends, families, and fool round where you're, you're trying to get off the ground and then a more institutional place. I mean, that's literally why we used it. Um, we were able to get enough money that the next time we're, we're going to come and talk to people, we'll be ready to talk to an institutional investor. It's really profound that like they also they have that like proxy feature essentially for all of those investors, right? So you got all those investors. That's definitely what you don't want if you're trying to raise money is all these investors who have a voice because everybody wants too many chefs in the kitchen. It just can go in a million directions. By having that proxy function, that's really clever for the platform to uh, kind of organize that all into one conversation. You only have to deal with essentially one body. Absolutely. I mean, and, and we, you know, we really appreciate it. And, and there's there's pros and cons to equity crowdfunding, which I think we can get into later. But I, I agree. I mean, we actually just got an email recently that they've now uh, raised the limit of the equity crowdfunding in the next couple months. It's going from one million seventy thousand to five million. Wow. wow. Yeah, that just happened. Uh, the SEC is seeing equity crowdfunding, and again, I come back like. 
institutional investment, it's an actual institution that has rules and games. And so VCs tend to work in a certain amount of money and angels tend to work in a certain amount of money. And if you find yourself needing something outside of what they are typical for them, you're sort of in a no man's land. And so if you can tell a good story and, and, and you can strategically reach enough ears, you know, you can really get a company off the ground that most people would say it'll never work. So what's uniquely different about fundraising for cannabis than it is with, with like a traditional brand? I mean, just the cannabis industry the last few years has just been difficult to work in with banking. Each state has its own rules, federal. A lot of people don't even, they don't want it in their portfolio. There's a, there's nervousness. A lot of the investment went to Canada because it was legal there. And then Canadian that companies took a big hit. went abroad and Americans kind of were waiting on seeing what's happening. Um, you know, it was a local play and, and per state, there's... The same problems that every other cannabis company has trying to raise money is just part of it. You think yeah. that crowdfunding is any different? I think the whole entire industry has to be better. And I think you know, funding in cannabis is problematic uh, all, all the way around. I mean, we've been doing it for six years, and you know, in the beginning, it was a lot of collateralized instruments. You know, having people UCC file assets in order to get money, and then if hit the fan, excuse my language. Uh, they would, you know, come get their assets, kind of like uh, lenders, you know. And um, I think it kind of like morphed into uh, safe notes and kind of things where, you know, because valuations were all over the board, people needed to say, hey, well, we like the idea. I'll give you some money and then we'll give you this sort of pre-agreed upon discount when we do determine evaluation, that type of instrument. I think today's market is uh, totally insane. Um, you know, you had the kind of crash in valuations from the Canadian market that's kind of all over us. You've really seen that the leadership in some of the bigger kind of like spearheaded companies fall apart, right? So you've seen MedMen fall apart. You kind of, a lot of these things fall apart. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence in investors into where the market's heading. And then, you know, obviously our governing body in this country is a little sideways right now, and we don't have the future of where we're headed very strong. You know, you've got essentially two people or that are, you know, potentials here that are not necessarily uh, pro-cannabis. And so that doesn't instill a lot of confidence in investors. So in my opinion, crowdfunding is the answer. <laughs> you know, specifically, if you can raise the limit from a million seventy to up to five million, I don't even think there is a better solution. I think this is the pivotal conversation for cannabis funding for the next couple of years. I think it's important to consider, you know, anybody who's looking at getting into being an entrepreneur that raises capital, you have to understand that when you're talking to any investor, they're looking at two things, risk and reward. Yeah. Those are the two R's that are the most important things to them. And the uncertainty inherently in, in the industry around legality, what's happening, that's a risk. And so there's red flags there. I think that it's a double whammy because seeing things like MedMen and Ease and all these companies that were everybody a year ago thought were no-brainers, juggernauts, are, <laughs> are like falling on their face and having to refocus and get lean, that actually questions the reward side too. So I think the important thing that I would say if I was to put this in lay, layman's terms, and this is something to understand, is institutional investors, they look... They use equations, they, they read up a ton of research, and they're looking at this risk and reward that maybe gets them to overthink everything. And you, 
anytime in our own lives when you overthink something, you make it too complicated and you freak out. I think the really cool thing about crowdfunding is you have the ability for people to throw $100 at a story they believe yeah, in. Right. And that's that's what I think makes crowdfunding so exciting is you don't have these massive amounts of money where people have to run the equations and freak out and sort of overthink. You have, for us, 741 people all agreed that they were willing to give us $140,000. And that's what's so exciting about crowdfunding is it's this new sort of every man's version of raising capital. You know, VCs and angels are quite an elitist group. And, and I think that that's what really excited us. That's like, we're in cannabis. Like, we don't play by the rules. And this this <laughs> whole, like, concept of, of we could go out and talk to a million people and people could throw us $100,000 bills, you know. It really revolutionized how we, we looked at it. And, you know, I come back to we'll obviously come back and want to talk to institutional investment later. But what would have normally been a valley of death where cannabis scope just ended, turned into a place where we were able to actually accelerate our growth and, and you know, doing a, a real Series A in, in the next year is very real for us. Now, that sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds like the holy grail, but but there is a process there. There is, it, it sounds like you have to start somewhere. So uh, tell me a little bit about the process and, and kind of where you start and where you move through and how do you get prepared for a campaign like that? So you need to be incredibly organized. And, and I know that we've like sort of if it sounds too good to be true, it's not true. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. there's, and, there's and so, work with it, right? Yeah, let's let's it's not free. Yeah, let's throw out that that warning that like you're offering equity in your company. There's a governing body in the United States of America called the SEC, and the SEC exists so that people can't just steal investors' money. And and, and like let's let's be clear here, that's awesome. Uh, the, we wouldn't have investment without the SEC helping us, but. We also have to be very sensitive that the SEC has an ungodly amount of rules. Um, so what I would warn everybody first and foremost is you need to be incredibly well organized with your legal and financial paperwork. Um, that is a grueling and painful process. The first time your organization has to go through what's called a proper due diligence. And if you ever hear somebody say due diligence, what that means is basically a company uh, or, or any investor is going to want to see your financials. They're going to want to see if you have any debt. They're going to want to see if you have any lawsuits, any litigation. They basically want to see everything about you because they're giving you money. And, you know, this is capitalism. Cash is king. Um, and so the process of getting organized is always painful. Um, the first time you do it especially and then it also costs money. You don't just you can't just put all the papers together and hand it off. Uh, you're going to need an attorney to go through and make sure that you know your your organization is properly set up. You know this is a little bit of a rabbit hole, but just anybody who's thinking about go getting into crowdfunding or any sort of investment, look up a C corp. A C corp is what you want to form when you're going to be going out for investment because it's structured around shares. Uh, that's a rabbit hole. Investopedia is an awesome resource. They have little two-minute videos on everything. Take the time to go look at C-Corp, S-Corp, and LLC. Those are kind of the major organizations. And then spend some time on the C-Corp because if you're looking to raise capital, that'll be what they request you form up as. And, it, and you're talking about the crowdfunding platform. So the crowdfunding platform, their demand is 
you got to be a C Corp because of the types of shares that are you can put together. So they didn't demand it, but in a very, very friendly way, they suggested <laughs> it about 400 times. They were like, yeah, it's cool you guys are, are an LLC, but we'd really like you to be a C Corp. And so we ended up pulling that trigger. And if you're an organization, again, that's looking at raising capital, you're not just going to raise capital once, you know. You raise capital to hit milestones that are hopefully defendable, and then you go try and raise more money to reach even a higher sort of milestone. So there's that cost. So be aware that you need to make sure your company's set up properly. And so that's one half of it. And then the other half of it that's, that's just to get approval is you need an accountant to do two years of financials. Uh, now, it's important to understand this is a little bit confusing, but... As to date, the way that, that the crowdfunding works is you can raise $107,000 if you sign up and do everything properly. If you want to basically move the decimal point over one decimal point and raise up to $1,070,000, then you're going to need uh, an accountant to go through and do two full years of financials to make sure that everything's on board up and up. Um, we ended up doing that because, you know, a crowd fund is no no joke, uh, and we really wanted to, you know, it was two thousand dollars for us to to pay for that attorney or not that attorney that accountant to do the accounting that they needed to do, and if you look at how we played out, we ended up raising one hundred and forty thousand dollars. So that two thousand dollars that we spent for the accountant opened us up to thirty three thousand more dollars that we were able to raise, which really night and day when yeah. you're a startup. <laughs> uh, did you have to be in business for two years? No, that wasn't necessary, but that's what they they need to do. Um, and, and, you know, you, you just sort of have a blank space there. So those are the two, I would say, the legality around your the formation of your company and then the financials is important. And then even to be accepted, which I think is the really important part, is you need to be able to tell a compelling story uh, to investors. You know, that was one of the things we went with MicroVentures. They were amazing. Um, That's MicroVentures.com? Yeah, MicroVentures.com. We did a lot of due diligence on them. We actually talked to a couple other companies that worked with them before we went went with them. Uh, They're a really reputable company, great people. I mean, everybody we engaged with there was super helpful. Um, And they were the ones that we decided to work with. And they were the ones really on the phone that wanted to know our story, wanted to know where we were going. So there's sort of your company, there's your financials, and then there's really telling a, a compelling story to investors. That's that's probably the most critical part. Getting approved is is sort of just checking the boxes, but the story is going to be whether you succeed or not. Gotcha. And so how do you choose, or how did you guys choose uh, the right platform? So you went with micro ventures. That's one, but there are multiple platforms out there. What, uh, what, what was there? Something about micro ventures, or was there something unique? Yeah, micro ventures was very cannabis CBD friendly, in that sense that the other companies we talked to were um, Canvas Big Data, who is a software company. They had CBD products. Um, some of the platforms I applied for weren't okay with it even though we can do the sec you know all this compliance isn't for the platform it's for 
the regulations, the platforms just who's hosting the escrow and going after, you know, they have their own investment group. So that was another part of it is with MicroVentures is they introduce us to a wide pool of investors. Plus we had the cannabis community is somewhat, you know, being in that space for the last few years. Um, that was a big part of it is, is them helping. Doesn't MicroVentures have like 140,000 investors or something like that? I mean, there's like tons of investors on there, right? I want to say those are the accredited investors, which they have their own VC with accredited investors. And then they reach out to, you know, we brought in a lot of our investors were non-accredited yeah. who were able just to put in 100 bucks, 500 yeah. bucks. And going back to like when I was just the LLC, like Michael, you can give me a thousand. I can give you, Nance, it became a corporation there's a place to put the money that was escrow there gave you the shares so um i mean it was just it opened up a huge venue for us where we had people who wanted to be involved and this is a place to to bundle it all together yeah so that's a big kind of key point there is that when you are choosing a funding platform to go on is like the amount of available investors on that platform that actually would make a huge difference and then another thing that you should be really sensitive to and, and again comes back to this term I used previously, due diligence. Not only are people going to do due diligence on you, but you need to do due diligence on anything you do with your business. So take the time to go to their website if you're thinking about joining a crowdfunding platform. And and don't be shy to call or, or send an email going, what are the fees? How do you guys make capital? You know, How do you guys make money off of this? If you're doing a crowdfund, I almost guarantee that you you don't have cash flowing out of your bank account, you know, like waves. <laughs> yeah. um, so one of the big things that you need to be really sensitive to is what's it going to cost for us. Like I said, you know, we had to spend about seven thousand dollars to even get uh, approved because that's just the legalities and the accounting that you need to to be approved by the SEC, so that we're you know doing everything above board. You know, we've talked with a couple other platforms uh, and and they had some pretty extensive fees around just being on the platform. Microventures was unique that they really only took a thousand dollars for the escrow account. They managed all our capital that it was moved to. They just, that was a flat fee that they passed along. So they were really amazing for us. And then to go back to sort of Dave's point, you know, we were really lucky the timing of when we went to Microventures, they had just finished cannabis big data and then they had like a CBD, I think it was like a beer or soda company. And so cannabis, MicroVentures right at the time, which is uh, middle of 2019, was one of the first platforms to really roll the dice on cannabis. And we showed up and, you know, we were saying the right word, SaaS platform, which is highly scalable. You know, there's artificial intelligence down the road and data revenue, like, we sort of said all the right things that, that made us very attractive. And so that's another thing. You might find if, if you're a cannabis organization now, the, the space is starting to get more saturated. And, and again, you're just going to need to really focus on telling an exciting story on how you're unique. So that's an interesting, that actually is a good leeway. So we, we've done the due diligence now, right? We've picked the right platform, but you can't just put up your content and just hope people will find you what what kind of how does that campaign break down what do you do getting accepted is its own job if it wasn't for shocker like it would have wouldn't have happened in the sense of so like having a strong team because we kind of conquer and divide you do accounting i'll do legal i mean you have to reach out and 
bringing other people, bringing professionals, just managing our own team. Um, and then once we were accepted and we're allowed to start marketing, everything has to be reviewed and accepted for what we can say so that you don't make any promises to potential investors on how much money you're going to make. And so just everything really had to be reviewed. So, you know, we had a calendar where this is where we want to be week one. This is what email is going to go out. This is what video is going to go out. And as much as we try to plan, so much of it had to be approved of what we could actually say. And, and that was a huge challenge in the so you had developed a whole campaign, but then had to get that campaign Every <laughs> piece of material also. And let me explain why that is. So again, I come back to the SEC. Compliance, yeah. Yeah, it's compliance. You can't tell people that your startup that barely has revenue in 10 years is going to be making a billion dollars. You cannot say that because if you say that to an investor and an investor invests in you, you as the business owner have, have just made a promise that you literally cannot keep. So you get through due diligence, which is a nightmare. You know, it's, I don't think I've ever heard anybody enjoy due diligence until it was already done and then you just send the paperwork when you're organized. <laughs> uh, then you're on your next hurdle and, and there's, it's twofold. One, I think there's this massive ma- misconception that once the crowdfund starts, like the world is going to see your crowdfund and invest. <laughs> They're just going to be like, this is the greatest well, company ever. I need yeah, and that. you're, you're going to do an email blast and everyone's going to open it and everyone's <laughs> going to invest. Uh, there's some numbers to consider. Email blasts, you'll have probably, if you're good, like a 10% open rate. And then of those people who will click on the actual email to go to your crowdfund page is about maybe 2 to 3%. And then who will make that final hurdle of clicking on invest, filling out invest is usually around 1% to 2%. So just that right there will give you the idea that if you multiply however many people you are going to reach by 0.01, that's about how many people are going to engage. And if everybody gives $100, it's pretty easy to start doing the math on how you're going to hit a million. You're going to need to probably talk to like 100 million people. Um, and so something that hit us as a big surprise is, and I think everybody goes through this in the crowdfund, you, when you crowdfund, the first week is incredibly exciting and you feel like such a winner. Every time you update the microventures page, there's another hundred dollars. <laughs> 10 minutes later, there's $500 and you're king of the world. And then like week two hits and it's crickets and you're freaking out. Um, <laughs> and that's the challenge is like. You, everybody needs to understand that it's it's like anything. You have to pay – one, you have to create compelling content that's engaging, one. And then two, you have to pay for it to get in front of people. I mean the internet is insane. There's something like 60 hours of YouTube videos uploaded every minute. Like there is a ton of static out there that you need to pay to, to sort of pierce and get people to pay attention. So that's a huge thing. Not only do you have to spend money to get in the campaign, you know, to get approved, but then you need to spend money on your on creating content and pushing content. And then the last thing, you know, is really we highly suggest if you're going into an equity crowdfund that you ahead of time take a calendar, break it down by week, create all your content before the campaign mm-hmm. starts and get it approved. Mm-hmm. Because like a marketing we, calendar. Yeah, and we just got like multiple times we had created really compelling content that when it got in front of the SEC, they shot it down. They're like, you can't talk about it like this. So that's a huge suggestion is just 
work with whatever crowdfunding equity crowdfunding platform you're doing and get all of your messages and content approved. It almost seems like um, like if you're going to consider doing this, that you should build an advisory team that maybe has seen something like this before just to prevent the amount of headaches that you're going to run up against. Seems really important. Absolutely. I mean, totally agree. We we were lucky enough again, tip of the hat to MicroVentures. They, they, they have a, an account exec that works with you throughout the entire campaign and you send your content to that uh, account exec and you get approvals and revisions. So that was amazing for That's us. Dope. But it was on us that we weren't more proactive on creating things. And there is a compliance checklist if, you know, this needs to be signed, this needs to be initialed. So, you know, throughout the process, we can see what's what's missing, what's on the calendar. But on the marketing side of it, um, yeah, like Paul said, if we – part of it was timing. We didn't – you know, we went from being accepted to, all right, campaign starts on Monday. It was like, man, we – you know, every making minute we had was getting our compliance together and then it just started. So, and you're running a business at the same time or trying to keep your current customers and clients active. And we, we actually did something that was a little unorthodox, but we hit about the $40,000 mark. Um, and we were like, okay, you know, and we were, I think we were driving the car to get burritos or something. And we realized like, this will be the one time in our lives that we have this opportunity to have this awesome platform where people who believe in us can, you know, give us money. I mean, literally hand us money. I mean, we had people in like Kentucky who we never met or heard of gave us $2,000 because they believed in our story. And so what we decided to do is we both agreed to take $5,000 in total out of our own money. Um, and put it into the campaign because we knew that you know we had forty thousand dollars. So when we finally received the funds, we could pay ourselves back. But we decided to spend that five thousand dollars, and you know, there's a story in itself. Um, we can have, I, sorry, can ahead. I interrupt you? Spend it on what? We what, what did you? You said you put it into the campaign. So you know, when you this is a whole thing around media buying. There's a couple different things you can do. You could pay an influencer to post and talk about you. You can pay to have a magazine run an article about you. What a lot of people don't understand is that magazines, blogs, they're all pay to play. Everything on the internet is pay to play. Like, And so, you know, we ended up engaging an online magazine our, uh, sort of uh, that was a huge win for us, drove a ton of traffic, was great. We paid uh, a more sort of typical type magazine that we got four views from and spent $2,000 on. It was the biggest waste of our time. Mm-hmm. Really frustrating. And money. And money. And then uh, we, we ended up engaging with a really cool PR team uh, who, again, believed in our story and were able to get us in front of a ton of people. And, and we saw the traffic. And that's another thing that will happen is you start to obsess over your campaign You'll start to learn about Google Analytics for your website. MicroVentures has a really cool tool that shows you how many people are visiting your page. So it helps you really see, um, you know, who's moving the dial for you. And I think the important thing is, again, we really, really wish we had been more strategic ahead of time. Um, but we didn't have any money. So we, we sort of just were responding. I wonder if you can set the table for that whereby um, kind of planning – a PR like a 
like a light PR campaign before your can your campaign hits the airwaves out there, you know, kind of maybe kind of get everybody's attention with some keywords in a PR campaign, you know, maybe that might be an interesting tactic to kind of get eyeballs as soon as it hits the waves. Yeah, and try anything. I mean, that's that's the reality. Try whatever you can with whatever capital you have, you know. I think that the most important thing to understand about a crowdfund is it's a hustle. And if if you look at how crowdfund, you know, microventures will release this uh, line chart that's this spike, it looks like these spiky mountains. And the peaks of the mountains are the days where you got a ton of money and the valleys in the, in the mountains are the days you got no money. And so the entire campaign is this emotional roller coaster of, oh my gosh, everybody loves us. Oh my God, everybody hates us. And, and what you learn by the end of the campaign is it's the ongoing hustle that will keep moving those peaks up and those valleys up. Um, it's, it's always going to be up and down just because that's the nature of the internet and people's attention spans. But you have to hustle. Now, what happens, what, what if you're struggling, right? What if you're not hitting your goals and these metrics? It sounds like you guys kind of set out these specific goals that you wanted to reach, which is obviously the best way to kind of build out your strategy. What happens when you're not hitting them? What happens when you're not? You drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I smoke a lot. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, we had a plan. We had to pivot. Um, hiring the PR company was we need... We need it. Somebody needs to read this article. It's great. It's sitting out there. Nobody's getting access to it. You can't sit around and expect it to happen because there's a push at the very beginning. Those first two weeks, we're number one. On, when you go to the site, we're you know we have the ribbon. We're blinking, new, new. Second week, we're not at that top spot anymore. We, we you know we're on the second fold of the site. Like we're old news after a while. So. Yeah, as far as being a marathon, I mean, we had a, a whole a second round, third round. We had a keep throwing stuff on the wall um and that's all you can do i mean so to answer your question in the clearest way it goes back to what i said sort of a while back you gotta hustle i mean you can't quit and you don't you literally don't know what's gonna work so you just got to keep doing things and there's a follow-up people get one email okay see see the title see the headline maybe they open the second one maybe they read it maybe the third one they see it you know they think about it Maybe they'll come back. Maybe you can, you know, like there's a follow-up email process that really took a lot of personal phone calls too. Um, I have a pro tip. So somebody talked with us about this early on, but as an entrepreneur, you know, if you've ever done it, it's this inherent, you know, pivot, 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 pivot. Like there's never a straight line to success. It's this squiggly line that looks like somebody – who spun around with a baseball bat 40 times, tried to draw. Um, that's success. And so the big thing that we did is I started every day to look at how much money we had and started to execute that capital. Um, we had a development team who I could call, and I basically every day was going, what can we do with 60K? Okay, what can we do with 80K? And what we ended up doing towards the end of our campaign is we hit $108,000, which is a big moment for us because that was where we could actually build a platform that was scalable. So in our campaign, we tried to tell people, not only are we going to build the scalable platform, but we want all this money to go to market. It's the same thing with like media. You can't just make media and expect people to see it. It's the same with a business. You have to pay to sort of launch the business and get things going. So when we hit that $108,000 mark, 
we sent out an email blast going, hey, everybody, congratulations. We now have a platform that can scale. We're ready to actually go to market. And that was a huge inflection point for us. We sent that email out and a lot of people who were sitting on the fence went, oh, this has got real. Oh yeah, this it this built momentum. Oh, there's you know when someone came to it and first time you come to it, come back. There's twenty. There's fifty. There's hey, there's over a hundred grand here, and you can see the number of other investors. So, someone of the FOMO, there was a big push at the beginning and all the way through till to the end. There's you know a countdown. Um, and the story changed. I think what Paul's trying to say is is as we were talking, it's like hey, like this is now our story come join us because we're doing it like we have over a hundred thousand there like we're not you know we're we have enough to do it it's it's almost like a a threshold like a wave threshold or something it's like oh everybody feels safe enough in like now it's like crowd theory or something like that like oh there's enough people in this thing we're not going to get slaughtered individually we'll all get you know we're all in this together and after after that email we saw more people were investing a thousand we, we started uh, early on. We only had a couple people putting in a thousand. And after that email blast and also microventures started sharing that story. And then we went out and found someone who loved our story enough to be our VP of sales. We released that story of, all right, we got the platform. Now we've hired this rock star who's done sales in the cannabis industry before. He's coming in and doing our strategic go to market. And so I think the important thing that you want to be doing is you want to show that you have a plan for your capital to investors because again that's what they're going to respond to, and so that's that would be the, the the sort of the trick, I would I would tell anybody who's thinking about doing crowdfunding is have some inflection amounts where you can say hey everyone we've reached this moment where now we're raising capital to go to market and that's what we were telling people we were like we have the platform now if you're giving us money you're going to help us make more money. Like, we're not building the rocket ship anymore. You guys are putting fuel in the rocket ship now. And for an investor, that's a very different conversation. Investors want to put fuel in a rocket ship. They don't want to build your rocket ship. And hopefully that that sort of, you know, metaphor works. But but that it was huge for us. I love that. It's also fantastic. Celebra- yeah. Yeah, celebrating the, the, the benchmarks of your campaign. But what happens, uh, kind of going back again, what if you don't raise your total amount? Like, what if you don't hit? Hit your, your your target. So there's a minimum that the platform will release. So what was it, 50? No, it's 20. 20. At, you know, so at least 21, okay, you can, you'll bank that. You know, you're, you might be trying to raise 200, but at least you hit 20. If you end up at 24, you fell at 24. Um, I mean, there, there's no promises on, on how it's going to turn out. And it comes back to that little trick that I just told you in your storytelling is it's actually not just a trick for the storytelling on how to engage your audience, but you really need to have a plan for increments of $25,000. So what, what could you do with $25,000 if you got that? Well, what could you do with 50? What could you do with 75,000? Like you, the, the idea here is you as an entrepreneur are going to need to have a plan for whatever you actually raise. And, and don't kid yourself very few companies hit their their goal of whatever it is. Like we were going for two hundred fifty thousand, we hit one hundred forty thousand. That ended up being enough for us uh, to really execute what we need to do to make this company sustainable. After we sat down and went back to the drawing board, so do not think that you can predict the future. You're going to need to make it work, no matter what you get. Um, and that's just being an entrepreneur. Like that's what you signed up for.
Are there any pitfalls that you maybe fell into that you would say, you know, you may want to watch out for this? I mean, I think something really important to understand, and this isn't a derogatory thing to say, but crowdfunding is what you could refer to as dumb money. You're getting money without any of the mind share that you would get with a savvy investor or a savvy VC. VCs and investors have built companies and sold them. It's why they're wealthy enough usually to invest. The crowd's not going to give you any help. They're not going to open any doors for you in the sense that, that, that they can't really give you a lot of the advice that you look for from more institutional. You know, institutional people who, 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 who sort of give capital to companies will come in and help the company. You know, crowdfunding, you're going to get given this money and then you need to make it work yourself. So that's something really important to consider because a lot of value in, in bringing someone in that gives you money, they're going to care and they're going to help you. You know, and, and we've actually figured out ways, creative ways, um, for how to still get our investors to help us. But, but keep in mind that it's it's really a place where you, you're going to get money and really nothing else. I mean, is there anything else that... I mean, the pitfalls, I think, to be aware of is don't be naive. Like, don't think that this is going to be easy. It's not. It's hard. It's grueling. And if you can't sort of stand in the storm and enjoy it, don't do it. That's just an entrepreneurial story, right? <laughs> That's kind of the entrepreneur... Yeah, really, I think really like telling the narrative too, you know, like the better storyteller you are. Like, for example, if you're not a good storyteller, maybe someone in your family or your friends who is a good storyteller, you might want to have them come help you tell the narrative. If you may be the best engineer in your garage making the, you know, the whatever, but the storytelling thing is really important. So maybe bring that person in. And also understand that like people think storytelling is like once upon a time, da 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 the end. When you're in, in a space where you're trying to raise capital, you're a financial storyteller. You know, a pitch deck and, and, and really the meat of, of any sort of campaign page is trying to tell these people how you're going to take their money and make more money. So you, you have to walk this fine line of presenting this awesome vision of your company of what it can be and, and it needs to be sexy and fun. But you also need to back that up with the financial story of how you can take this money and make more money. You know, just going out and telling a good story, it's not enough. I mean, investors will see right through that. So I love that. So it's not just your personal story of how this brand got started, but the actual story of how this business is going to continue to grow and build and bring that investment back some return. Because really, isn't that what all investors are really doing? They're hoping they want return. No one's just giving you $1,000 to just be like, here's $1,000. Ah! You know, everyone's hoping that they're going to get some sort of return. They're investing in something that's going to be successful. So that story is also the future of where it's going to go. The worst you mistake you'll make, and we all do it as, as an, a young entrepreneur, is our pitch deck is basically a deck around what is our product? What does it do? What's the history of the product? And, and what you'll learn as you get older and more mature is that your solution as it is, is one page on a 12-page pitch deck. And so just keep that in mind, like, it's awesome, everybody thinks their baby's amazing, and everybody loves your baby, that's fine, but we don't want to hear about your baby. We want to hear about how your baby's going to grow up to be a professional football player that makes $100 million a year. And, and just that's sort of a pro tip for everybody out there, like, tell the problem and tell the solution, and then move on to how is the company going to work, how is it going to grow, 
And, and something that I see so often is people don't tell investors what they're going to get, you know, and, and that was solved for us through the equity campaign because, you know, we were giving away shares. But, you know, just just keep in mind that a pitch deck isn't about you or your company. It's really about the future you see and, and the financial sort of gains that someone can get from engaging you. Now, you talked about uh, content, taking a step back here. Did you guys create a video or an anthem or anything like that for the brand? Yeah, so what's kind of cool about the brand itself is canvascope.com. You can just play with it. It works. It was on site when people went to the page. What is this? Click. Oh, this is cool. Like, I could, being a tech company, when people are going to MicroVentures page, you have to have your pitch deck on there and you have to have a video. Um, actually, Paul filmed the video. We went into one of our partner retailers they let us kind of show how you know the cashier using it in the back so when we were able to actually show it in the store this is how it works this is you know you see people standing in line using it um but that was one of the requirements for the campaign page that the platform when investors come to it there's an executive summary there's all the legal notes and uh the video so now let's say you, okay, you're a successful campaign. You did great, <laughs> right? And you raised your funds, hopefully what you were looking for. What does it look like after that? What happens post-raise? I think that that's something that's really important to understand is like the the campaign ends up being such a exhausting sort of emotional roller coaster that you lose sight of the fact that the entire point that you put yourself through this sort of hell was to have money to actually execute on an idea. Um, we ended up raising $140,000, which was short of the 180 we really, really needed to execute on what we wanted to do. And so post-raise, you know, and this is sort of a funny story to give you an idea of why is cannabis a unique space. We're like on our way to all-you-can-eat sushi, and we're driving through Vegas, and we're, we're, we're sort of – you know, talking about how the THC market's falling flat on its face and when is it going to be legalized and all these companies are losing money. And we keep driving by these CBD shops. And we sort of had this epiphany looking at one another going, oh my gosh, like we're an online platform. You can sell CBD products right now in any state and ship it wherever you want. That's where we need to be. That's where, that's the shortest path for us to take this $140,000 that we have in an escrow account um, and we can take that and start generating capital and making a sustainable company. And we're really excited about that. And then we got a call from our bank and because our name of our company was Cannabiscope, our bank dropped us. So we had $140,000 sitting in a bank account and we had nowhere to put it. Wait, wait, so the bank knew you had money and still didn't want to take your money? Yeah, and that's the big thing. Like, <laughs> What most people don't understand is it doesn't really, you know, we don't eat, we don't touch the plant. We're a, we're a software. We're zeros and ones in the matrix. Like <laughs> we don't, and we don't want anything to do with that. And and just the fact that we had on our website, we had some strains. The bank said, forget it. We don't want anything to do with you. Um, and so that's the nature. Like keep in mind, like it's hard enough being an entrepreneur and like, you know, we had this great moment where we realized what we were going to do with $140,000. And then you'll get hit by the cannabis curveball of your bank just dropped you or 
this super shady payment processor just disappeared overnight and their website's down. Like cannabis is a space where you need to be brave and you need to do your due diligence and, and you need to be careful, you know, like it's, it's, it's an ever moving, uh, sort of <laughs> like landscape that you have to respond to. I love the cannabis curveball because that's exactly how it is. We we're talking about timing earlier. By the time the campaign ended, the farm bill came into play and CBD became available nationwide, online sales. So that was a big difference because that opened up the whole country. As before, we were doing a state-by-state licensing with stores and brands and working where we could. And once the farm bill, so part of it is, you know, like, what what can we do? Is, is What were the rules that we could play in? Um, and that wasn't the case when the campaign started compared to when it um, really ended and the money was available. So, that, you know, that made a big difference, too, in, in what we could do with the money. And I think the important other thing to sort of think about is right now, Dave and I are under a magnifying glass by the whole investment world. You know, we... A lot of people told us we couldn't do it, um, and our legacy as entrepreneurs will be: Can we take this set amount of money, and can we turn it into a profitable, sustainable business? And and, and I think that, that those are the things you can't lose sight of. If you're brave enough to go out and ask for people's money, have the humility to have a plan to like actually do something with it, yeah. and, and 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 be valuable. Like, you know, the crowdfunds fun, and when it's over smoke a joint, drink a beer, whatever your celebration technique is, but know that like now the work starts. And, and I, I think that that's something that I'd like to stress is like business is nothing without a moral compass. And so just know that like we, Dave and I, take the fact that 741 people who I think 700 of those, we don't know, we take it very seriously. They gave us money. Like, and we are going to go out and we are going to execute the best we can. I can't tell you how many times in my career as an entrepreneur I've seen people raise a couple million dollars from VCs and and act like the after party's starting and, and, and it's over, like it's just started, you know. And this is this is really your time to make your story, you know. Uh, investment, whether it's crowdfund, VC, angel, is just a means to an end of creating a sustainable growing business. And that's that's why we're all here. I think you mentioned it earlier when we were having the conversation before the podcast. So many people concentrate on the raise, and the raise is the goal, right? And then so once you get your, your raise, you're like, oh, wahoo, that's – and you're like, just like you said, the raise is just the first step, right? It's just getting you into the game. Now you're in the game. It gets you in Thunderdome. <laughs> exactly. Now you're going to have to – Then you have to survive. Now you got to drive because cause, right, if a brand takes $100,000 from a raise – and makes real revenue off of that, that's a way more successful brand that raised one million, right? They think they're successful, but they make no revenue off of it or they struggle with it or whatever. So it's not so much the level of the raise, it's really- It's what you do with it. Absolutely. So, I mean, that was that was incredible, guys. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That, that was really, really informative information. And I think there's a lot of really cool nuggets in there that I think will, will be helpful for everyone, just whoever's interested in doing fundraising in general. Uh, but crowdfunding sounds like it's kind of the spot on for the cannabis space right now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it, it, where can people um, uh, get a hold of you and find you? Obviously, there's CannabisScope.com. And uh, is there any other ways that people can reach out to you guys? It's a safe bet to say that in May 2020, 
you can go to gvmarket.biz and that'll be the first marketplace where you can actually experience the platform, use the wheel to find what CBD can do for you, find what you're looking for, and then you can actually purchase it and it'll arrive in your house a couple days later. And then um, if you are a CBD business, an online retailer in any way, shape or form, June, July, gonna start uh, creating unique instances of the platform and allow you guys to brand it as your own. You'll have your own content management system. And then you can use the platform to sell your own products. Awesome. That's and they, incredible. And people can go right now to CannabisScope.com and just play with the wheel and kind of see how it works a little bit, right? Absolutely. Go to CannabisScope, click around, have some fun. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to because it's a very visual thing and it's interactive. Yeah. Kind of hard to say it over the podcast, but it's such a cool tool to be able to just say, well, what am I looking for? What am I interested yeah. in? And definitely just kind check of interact. it out. Yeah, so definitely check it out, CannabisScope.com. Thank you guys again for coming in. We really, really appreciate you sharing that with us. And uh, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah, that was great. Got some great information there. Yeah, no, it, it really helps when you have entrepreneurs that have experience. They've gone through not just, you know, this isn't their first startup. It's not their first rodeo. So they're pulling from experience of going through different types of funding rounds and different types of startups in the past. And they really have a wealth of knowledge to approach this type of fundraising. I think it's super important. Yeah, Shockley said he worked with other companies. He's built multiple companies before this. So he's coming from more of traditional industries, bringing those those tactics and those skills into the cannabis space. And then, uh, and then getting hit with a cannabis curveball, right? It's yeah. it's really really cool seeing people that are not only experts in what they do, but they're actually out there doing it and actually raising the funds themselves and building these campaigns and saying, "Man, I- I'm doing it today." Yeah, you know, Dave is uh, uh, very passionate about this. This was his baby, you know, and I've seen it a million times where you know there's somebody who's the founder. And um, they aren't able to find the right partner at the right time and good ideas just get sidelined or get put in the gutter. And what Dave was able to do was to find the right partner. Once they connected, it really energized the whole conversation. They pivoted to the uh, crowdfunding platform and were able to successfully navigate that. And now they're um, you know, a great example for entrepreneurs who want to who can't figure out financing or can't figure out funding for their cannabis startup, now there's a real case study that shows this is how we did it, this is what we recommend, and this is the option. And considering the apocalypse of cannabis funding right now, especially in the United States, crowdfunding might be one of the only options people have. It's fantastic to see this. So it sounds like, if we can kind of just summarize it, planning, strategy, that's that's the big thing. That's that's what I got out of both of those, both of them talking about it. Is you you can't just go into this crowdfunding thing hoping you're going to pop up your campaign and just people are going to throw money at it. Even with a great product, right. even with an incredible opportunity, you got to have a story. You got to have, and not just a story of where you came from, but where you're going, yeah. and a strategy behind and it. And I think people have to take this seriously. This isn't a GoFundMe, right? It's not like you pop up. Oh, I need two thousand dollars for this. This is a serious fundraising thing. So if you're going to be serious about it, you have to form a C-Corp. There is some planning you need to do that because you know that SEC regulations are going to prevent you from saying certain thing and promising certain thing to investors. You really need to plan this out. So, you know, if you're going to do this, taking their example, looking at Cannabiscope, how they went through microventures and watching the whole sort of lineage of how they got started, how they got going, taking these pro tips that they gave us on this podcast and applying that to your process 
it's super important. It's super important if you really want to be successful because you're issuing shares, you're taking investors' money, and you need to be serious about it. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors today. We have Grapefruit, who absolutely did incredible, allow us to kind of come in here and record and, and talk so we can get some really great resources out to you. Also, Emerald Market. Check that out. That's a new event. What's the website for that? That is emeraldmarket.co. And what is Emerald Market? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked, James, <laughs> actually. Uh, the Emerald Market is a marketplace designed for cannabis events and cannabis sponsors, uh, events that are looking for some great um, brand activations um, that are just struggling to find that, and brands that are looking for really interesting, cool, unique, innovative uh, events to connect. We're just, Emerald Market is there to connect the two. And so uh, if you're an event that, that needs some sponsorship, uh, reach out to, to, you can go to emeraldmarket.co, um, or if you're a sponsor and you're looking for some amazing activation opportunities like The Good Life uh, on this rooftop event, or um, if you're looking for something more B2B like uh, SCCBIG, we have that kind of inventory. We have a huge inventory of, I think, about 150 different events that are going on throughout the next year. Yeah, just some, just some examples of that. We got some, uh, you know, a lot of brands are looking to activate for lifestyle stuff, right? So um, we have um, a party coming in early June in San Diego called the West Coast Weekender. They're expecting 1,200 people. If you want to be a cannabis brand or a CBD brand that wants to activate with that particular demographic, it's a fantastic activation opportunity. So if you're interested in, you know, getting involved in events that have big influencers, kind of like A-list type celebrity things, we can do that for you too. We have have a lot of inventory. So that's Emerald Market. So check that out. That's going to be some great stuff. Emeraldmarket.co. I'd like to thank our producer, Chandler Perry, and our buddy, Joseph Chicas, for coming in for support today. And then also our guests, Paul Shockley and David Schachter from Cannabis Scope. And also to our sponsors, Grapefruit Distro and Emerald Market. So James, you know how I end, and I think I got, I think I got something good for, uh, for this episode specifically. Mm. Okay, I'm listening. Without strategy, execution is aimless. Without execution, strategy is useless. There you go. That was Morris Chang, CEO of TSMC. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Morris. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here today at Emerald Forge. Really appreciate it. Make it a good day. <laughs> yeah, go out there and make a difference, why don't you? Friends, family, and fools is a great one. I love the cannabis Curveball, because that's what it is. You're like, I got this. I got this figured out. I got the rule, and then boom, a cannabis curveball comes out of nowhere. We also, we also like the cannabis clown car. When we were trying to find a, a payment processor, it was like this clown car pulled up. One clown stepped out. Another clown. Another. Clown.